Hello and welcome to this sixth episode of Creator Spotlight from The Interface. Creator Spotlight is our brand new series where we talk to creators about what they make and do and how they got started. Today's episode will be a little bit different from the most. Usually we speak to creators, but wireless is such a fascination of mine, I had to get David on the show to talk about what he does. Today I'm joined by David Theodore from Climate Resilient Internet. David has worked in the microwave and wireless industry since the late 80s and was part of the team responsible for the first microwave link. So welcome, David. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, great. It's uh, WISPs and, and the whole internet, uh, wireless internet as a whole, is such a deep fascination of mine. It's where I got started in, in my career. So it, it's something I just had to had to get you on to talk about because it's, it's such an interesting topic. So mm-hmm. um, for people that don't know much about you, um, where did, what's, your, what's your background and how did you get started in the, the wireless industry? Uh, well, uh, how I got started was... Um, I was working for MCI Telecommunications, which was the company that broke up AT&T. Um, and uh, we were selling competitive um, phone access. And, uh, you know, back then we had uh, just a monopoly here and uh, there was no way around them. So MCI was the first competitive uh, carrier. And so I sold service for them. Uh, I took the job. It was straight commission um, at a political science degree. There's nobody would have hired me. So (laughs) that's my background. And uh, I fell in love with telecom. I mean, it was like a a time where, um, you know, there was some really uh, explosive developments and, you know, huge industries were born. Um, And um, we had a guest speaker one day that came in and talked about microwave bypassing and mentioned how you know, one day uh, companies that are completely beholden to telco will have some autonomy, will be able to save money, will be able to, um, you know, have their own communications links. This was all pre-fiber. Um, so I was really intrigued by the payback and uh, the fact that um, with AT&T divested, now some of these competitive technologies, um, you know, could be marketed. And so it was exciting. And uh uh, I got into the business six months later as a reseller and uh, convinced the manufacturer at that time, it was Maycom, um, to front me money to uh, to go out and start to market microwave links to business consumers that uh, were paying, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars for T1 lines, uh, mainly because they cross telephone exchanges, but uh, it could only be a few miles. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm spending too much time on that. Um, but at the same time that I was getting into the business, um, I was hearing about, uh, token ring and ethernet, um, you know, and, uh, new developments coming. I was in Kendall square, uh, literally blocks away from some of the very first, um, domains on the internet, like symbolics, they were the world's first URL, um, thinking machines, deck, uh, Bo Brannick and Newman, which had a lot to do with launching the internet. Um, and so, you know, I was in the middle of, uh, of, of a lot of people talking about where the industry was going and I got this incredible bug, um, to have a microwave link come out with an 802.3 interface and be able to connect to an ethernet network. Um, you know, I was absolutely certain that ethernet was going to take over and, and dominate that token ring was probably going to fade away. And that pretty much everything was going to be standardized onto this, um, you know, onto the Ethernet spec. And so I went and talked to radio manufacturers about, you know, 
whether or not they could do such a thing. And nobody was interested. They all thought it was a myth. And they were right. You know, I was way too early for the market. Um, but I was also in my 20s and no one could tell me no. And so um, I had uh, pretty much taken all my proceeds from sales and hired a couple of engineers as contractors. Uh, one guy had a terrific background in, uh, in land development, hardware and software. And the other guy was a radio guru. Um, and uh, the three of us put our heads together. And nine, nine months later, we had this interface and it was the world's first fixed wireless access solution. And what was exciting is that um, even back then, if customers like had any skepticism about wireless, and this is you know just really when people were first getting cell phones, uh, and cell technology was terrible. I mean, there were very few cell sites, so calls were dropping all the time. But people couldn't afford to be skeptical about wireless because we were the only way for so many institutions to get their first internet access and to extend that access to remote campuses. Um, and so, you know, back then, most of our early clients like MIT, Harvard, UCAL, Berkeley, you know, they were thinking if this works even marginally, it's going to be awesome. Um, but it worked better than marginally. It worked flawlessly. You know, we had the famous five nine performance um, and we were providing 10 megabit connections when the internet backbone was 10 megabits. So even if you, you know, somehow could get fiber with a snap of a finger or throw millions of dollars at it, you weren't going to get anything more than what we were already delivering. So, you know, we, we ran with that all through the late eighties and uh, through the 1990s um, until uh, 802.11 came out. Um, Cisco was getting a lot of attention uh, for, uh, for being in that business. And even though their solution was substandard and only providing a two megabit connection, it was Cisco. So like, you know, they had a huge following still do. Um, and then of course, fiber started to uh, become available everywhere and, and it was really cheap. Um, and internet backbone speeds went up to hundred megs and gigabit. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of changes, but what's interesting is the way wireless was used uh, in the first part of my career because it was used for backhaul, which is the same way that we use fiber optics today. And so, mm -hmm. you know, where early institutions got their first internet access by fixed wireless, um, the fixed wireless would stay in place oftentimes, even when fiber came in, um, you know, for backup, or maybe there was some kind of hybrid solution. And many years ago, you would look at the, the rooftop of um, a telco building or a data center, and you'd see hundreds, like, you know, dozens or hundreds of micro antennas, like at 60 Hudson Street um, in, in Manhattan. You know, they had, uh, I mean, the, the roof was absolutely covered in dishes. And so, so many people were getting to the internet by fixed wireless. Well, today, there's really no... Uh, wireless backhaul business to speak of. We don't use wireless that way. We use fiber for backhaul and, you know, and we're now using wireless, not for enterprise, not even much for cellular backhaul, but for residential. Um, but what today's WISP community isn't aware of is that at one time, enterprise absolutely loved fixed wireless and they will again.
it's going to be an enormous, um, you know, an, an enormous opportunity for us. Definitely. So that, that very first product that you helped develop, what I'm just interested, what frequency was that running on? At the time? Uh, great question. It was all 23 gigs. Okay. Yeah. That's still quite a, that's still quite a popular frequency really in, in, in backhaul stuff. Uh, it's got quite a good compromise against lower frequencies, the, the cost of licensing. So was that, was that license free at the time or? No, it was licensed. Okay. Uh, we had to uh, get a radio specially type accepted. Um, it was an analog radio. It was a, a video, you know, uh, cable TV broadcast radio. So uh, it was wideband video and then audio channels. And so basically they, the bandwidth went out to like 6.8 6. 8 megs. And we had to clear that out um, to give us, you know, 10 megs with some uh, some space on either side. And so basically we um, modified an analog video radio, had it type accepted um, at the wow. FCC. And uh, those were the first um, fixed wireless access radios. So you used a very small slither of 10 megahertz of spectrum. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, it was one bit per hertz. Um, and, uh, you know, it worked beautifully. The limitation was actually Ethernet propagation delay. It wasn't the radio itself. You know, like okay. most people would say, oh, well, the radio was a limiting factor because 23 gig isn't so great in weather. And so you have to keep your path distances short. But back then to keep within the 802.3 propagation delay allowance, which was like 46.4 microseconds, give or take, um, we had a 4.3 mile uh, distance limitation. Later, we worked with Cisco um, and modified our interface so that uh, we so that it was full duplex uh, end to end, and then we no longer really had to worry about uh, the delay budget. And so then we were then at that point uh, the limitation became 23 gigs. Um, but of course, we could repeat the signal. In the times when you launched the first 23 gig product, how many iterations did it go over in, until before the uh, the 802.11 standard? How, was there any major d developments in speed or in that, in that time period? Or um, interesting question. So, um, what we did first was we just created the the um, interface, and the interface was called the EtherWave transceiver. Um, occasionally, I still find them on eBay. You know, somebody's like, I have this, uh, you know, it, it's a, a, a rack mounted unit, uh, yeah, yeah. inch tall, 19 inches wide, and I'll see them on eBay. Um, so at first we created that interface and that interface connected to uh, the radio that we modified, but the radio that we modified uh, wasn't ours. It was, it was owned by a company in Connecticut called International Microwave. They're no longer in business. Um, so, you know, we had to deal with them to use their radios. In the span of time um, before 802.11, we ended up making our own radios because we were in a constant pissing contest, excuse me, um, with radio manufacturers because the problem back then is radio people knew nothing about Ethernet and the LAN environment, nothing at all. And so, um, you know, if anything went wrong, they immediately wanted to point at uh, our Etherwave transceiver and say, well, you know, uh, we don't have the design to that. We don't know exactly what it's doing, um, you know, sure. that kind of thing. So ultimately, we uh, we got tired of, um, you know, 
basically fighting that fight. And we could see the economics as we were growing into, you know, to make our own radio. And then once we made our own radio, um, there were different versions of radio that we made. Um, because back at that time, radios were all or nothing. You know, everything was packed onto one board. So oftentimes, if you had a problem in the field, you had to replace really seriously expensive components. Um, and so, you know, we broke our radio down into uh, five inch high uh, boards. And so, you know, we could just replace a power supply board, an IF board or something like that. Um, the boards were a couple of hundred dollars. We could, you know, carry them in, uh, in service kits. Um, but the other thing that we did as well was we made our own bridges because uh, back at the time, most of our customers were connecting to Cisco routers and routers then were like 25,000 US dollars an end. Uh, but the only other way to connect um, local and remote networks was to either go through a repeater, in which case like all the traffic from one building was going to the other side, yeah. or to use a bridge to filter out uh, local and, and remote addresses. And so um, the only bridge at the time was made by DEC and their bridge was like 10 grand an end. And so we were ending up with problems where so much of the cost of uh, delivering uh, our solution was in the interfaces. So then we also made our own bridge, which um, we uh, which was better than the deck bridge at the time. Um, and so, you know, we could make it for $1,200, sell it for $2,400, you know, like reduce ten fifteen thousand dollars off a link cost um so there were those kinds of things that we did but the real the real mistake that we made uh is that when um when the internet backbone went from 10 megs to 100 megs um i made a uh, a transfer of technology deal with motorola in lieu of uh, getting in bed with venture capitalists who uh could have accelerated our r d um and gotten us to the next step but I thought that it would be better to um, team up with Motorola where I would keep 100% of my company um, and uh, grow in partnership with Motorola. But uh, Motorola sold the division that we had our uh, technology agreement with like a year after uh, we consummated it. And so that went buns up. And, um, and then I had some learning experiences which brought me to this day. Sure. Is that is that division they sold? Um, is, is that what became Cambia Networks, or is that yeah, is that something that, a, lot, a lot later on? That's a really interesting question, Alex. Um, Telesciences, uh, they they seem to have had something uh, with the start of Cambium. Um, I never quite um, connected the dots, but it's interesting that you said that because that kind of re. Um, um, reaffirms that there may be something. Yeah. Um, that that's really interesting because, in, in some way, then you know maybe our early technology ended up in Cambium's hands. It potentially. Um, I know. I know some of the development of the Ubiquiti Air Fiber. I remember watching a video from when that was announced in 2013. A lot of the original guys that used to develop that product for them came from Motorola as well. So I, I wonder if I wonder if there's some sort of splitting of, of knowledge I, i'm not sure so I, I remember that ubiquity set up a, a complete new r&d team in texas i think 
I can't remember what it was, but to, to develop the Air Fiber when it came out. So yep. maybe there's maybe there's bits and pieces of your stuff out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, of course, yeah, no. you know, I, I was using analog radios, and the, the whole world went to digital radios. Um, sure. But interestingly, uh, the analog radios were actually far better in the early years of digital radios, and we still had quite a uh, a market hold for that reason, because. This was before radios gracefully stepped down in modulation, you know, when when the path became attenu- attenuated. So now if you have, you know, a huge rainstorm that impacts your transmission, your, you know, your bandwidth will degrade. Yeah. Well, back then there was no such mechanism uh, or else it was really rudimentary and it didn't work well. Um, and so with analog radios, we never completely cut out. You know, the signal would degrade, um, but, you know, Ethernet automatically retransmitted and on the whole, um, customers would not be, you know, wouldn't be aware at all. Uh, Whereas with digital radios, they would just flat out shut down and, you know, customers had to recycle everything. The digital cause everything to lock up. Yeah, it's sort of gone backwards a little bit. So if you've got a routed network and you've got radio links on them, getting the routed network that's actual hardware like switches and routers to play nicely with the radio links. Mm-hmm. If the radio manufacturers about to put software bits in place to say, once you've got to a certain modulation level, just kill this link and we can get, we can let the routing protocols take over. So maybe that's, they've had to sort of, yeah, go backwards a little bit. So what I remembered was that the digital links would crap out and, um, and then basically it would, it, there would be this cascading network effect where the IT managers would then have to go around and just basically power cycle, you know, their their bridges, their switches, routers, and everything else, and it 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 would be something that would keep people down for you know forty five minutes at a time. Definitely. So you mentioned that um, when the switch over to digital radios, it's not something that um, microwave bypass did. No. Nope. What, what led what led to the ultimate? What led to the end end of it basically? So. The end of microwave bypass. Yeah. Um, well, it, there was nothing, you know, nothing catastrophic. It was a frog in a frying pan kind of thing where, um, you know, actually we were caught be- with another force, which was the dot-com bu- bubble. So at a certain point, I decided that um, I was going to get out of the business of um, selling to enterprise end users because we were doing installations in 46 states and in six countries. We literally were flying people all over the country to do installs. Um, at a certain point, the economics just weren't there. And, um, you know, we had friends in companies like XO um, where, you know, they were talking to us about, well, you know, they could deploy these radios for us in their account base, in their networks. And, you know, we were going to go from uh, singular quantities to dozens and hundreds and then uh, the, the dot-com bubble burst right at that time that I was trying to make that transition. Um, and I remember going into uh, to see C-level employees at these big companies. Um, and, you know, they'd pull me around the corner by the coffee machine or whatever and, and give me their card and say, you know, call me if you hear of any good opportunities out there. And I was like, oh, holy crap. So, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out, like, well, how do we still stay relevant? Um, but what ended up happening was I learned something, 
a really hard lesson that today's WISPs are only now starting to learn, um, which is I got to see bandwidth become a commodity. Um, in, in, you know, when I talk about the frog in the frying pan, it's that uh, I was making less and less money um, and I didn't realize until it was too late that the business was basically untenable. You know, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in it anymore. Um, in the early years, even after microwave bypass, I was doing consulting, um, and, uh, you know, some interesting projects. Um, but I had kind of counted on my major accounts, always remembering me and always remembering that I was all about reliability, um, you know, my mantra at that time it was was all about reliability. Like, when you think about the cost of your connection, you've got to factor in, you know, uh, the the anticipated cost of downtime as well. You know, which is a huge cost that nobody really was thinking about. So, you know, if you think you're saving money buying from the discount provider down the street that doesn't have any experience, and you think you're saving seven grand on their quote. And you have a day and a half long outage that costs you $50,000, right? So, you know, surprisingly, Alex, people just really weren't buying into that discussion anymore. And it was just like, look, <laughs> your competitors willing to do this for 25% less. So sharpen your pencil. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've always been kind of prideful about my work. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to sharpen my pencil. I don't want to be the lowest price provider. Um, that's not where my head is at. And so... Um, sure. I actually, I actually started to get out of the business, you know, and, um, it was heartbreaking. Nobody knows me. I mean, everything I did was before anything was digitized for Google. Nobody cares about like 1980s and nineties trade journals, you know? So I literally didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, and so then I started a blog and I was writing on, on LinkedIn and, um, you know, basically just giving my opinions and uh, on on what I was seeing happening in the industry, um, and uh, um, yeah, and so one thing led to another, uh, and I ended up finding out, you know, essentially how to save this industry. And I don't mean that like in a you know, God forbid, Kanye West, <laughs> Kanye kind of way. I don't mean like save it, like oh, I'm, but I, you know, I have a solution based on a lot of years of, of observing this, uh, this industry. And I really think that it's like the way um, to save a lot of small providers, a lot of small wisps. Uh, I think it's a way to enlarge our industry, not just to make us more competitive, but to make the playing field 10 times larger so that there's so much more for all of us um, to, uh, you know, to eat to feed our families. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of business out there. Um, and, uh, I think that I've tapped a vein, um, in, uh, you know, in looking at, um, extreme weather and making the connection there between, you know, extreme weather, uh, climate change and, uh, and telecom infrastructure. Yes. So with climate resilient internet, that's still new, Mm -hmm. the new the new venture you're doing yeah. um, it's, it's definitely an important thing to look at because i remember the, I, remember, I can't exactly remember what country it was but there was some sort of storm uh, or natural disaster in the islands in between mexico and, and the us i think there's mm -hmm. some uh, islands there and i remember there was a lot of 
very fast-paced work to get their infrastructure back up and running. Yeah. Um, and they used a lot of ubiquity equipment, I think, to get themselves back up and running. Within days, I think they got most of most of things running again by a mm. by licensed or unlicensed backhaul. So yep. it's yeah, it's definitely an important thing. I've noticed. I remember we had a discussion before the podcast that backhaul uh, wireless backhaul is used less and less in cellular. I've I've noticed that in the UK a little bit as well. So you see cell towers or phone towers that are out and about, and they usually have a lot of microwave links on them. Less the ones I see regularly, they've they've now got them taken down. They're probably using uh, fiber as backhaul, which is interesting. So, well, you know, we live in an all fiber world. This is what most people don't understand. They think you know, like oh, everything's wireless, but everything isn't wireless. But be- be- before your cell phone gets to the internet, it's got to push through a lot of fiber optic cabling. And moreover, it's dependent on uh, an aging, failing, overtaxed electric grid, you know. Um, and it's interesting. I, I was out at Whisper Palooza um, a couple of weeks ago, and I gave a talk. Uh, a lot of WISPs, I would hazard to say most WISPs in um, our industry think that enterprise, you know, doesn't take fixed wireless seriously, and they're not ready uh, to buy into it and that it's too hard to break into that business. Um, but I have news for them. Uh, I, I, I think that that's 100% wrong. Um, I think that, uh, they have to know how to sell to enterprise. And I think that we need to wake the world up, uh, about how we access the internet and why that access is so fragile. Um, and why that access is so vulnerable. This isn't just an IT problem. This is a problem for all of us because no matter who you are, you know, you have to depend on the internet working and on organizations, critical infrastructure reaching the cloud or else you're not flying in an airplane when you get to the airport and you're not getting um, critical medical attention when you get to a a hospital. Um, You know, there's so many functions in our day-to-day life that are tethered to the cloud And those cloud connections can be 27 miles away from where, you know, where the client is. Um, So people need to understand that, um, you know, understand what the problem is. And the problem really is that extreme weather is coming for terrestrial infrastructure. Telephone poles, cable, um, you know, power cable, that's all fodder for extreme weather. And it's not to say that it's bad. It's critical. We need it. I mean, I love fiber. Without fiber, we wouldn't have the internet. Um, And, you know, that's what we're actually doing. Our mission is to take data from vulnerable areas, floodplains and hazard zones, and ferry that data to high and dry ground to resilient internet data centers where uh, clients can reach the cloud and they can also... um, you know, get out through the internet on known good uh, lit fiber. Um, So, I mean, the message that we have is that we don't need to lose critical communications in a natural disaster. We all know that's the worst time in the world to lose communications. Um, And so far we've been willing, you know, somehow to deal with it. I think because we're inured to it. I mean, we've grown up this way. We understand that, oh, well, that just happens. But what's different from how we grew up is that every day um, organizations become more critically connected to remote cloud data. So 
those last mile connections are critically important to all of us. And so what we're doing, we liken to lifeboats for the internet, you know, um, or you can even say seatbelts and you can argue with the efficacy of it. And, you know, my answer to that is that seatbelts work. They don't work 100% of the time. Um, you know, sometimes there's a tragedy where somebody actually dies when they're wearing a seatbelt, but we don't say, oh, forget your seatbelts, you know? Um, and so when you study the, you know, when you study backhaul and how we reach the internet, and what our internet infrastructure is, uh, and different means of, of communications, then logically, you know, you get to that, like, Fixed wireless, wireless backhaul is the only way you can move large volumes of data outside of cable. You know, you can't do it with satellite, um, you know, and and so um, so this is something that we're trying to uh, both raise awareness to and uh, and and get people to adopt um, in the in the future. We're going to see this, I believe, as new best practices for internet connectivity in the age of climate. Um, and, and, you know, and we will not have critical communications outages because we'll always have some level of resilience. The thing we need to stop doing is waiting until the, you know, what hits the fan and then showing up with cows and colts, sell on wheels and sell on light trucks. Those are great solutions. We've had them since the 1990s, but that's not, you know, it's too little, too late. We can't wait. We can't roll those out days after a calamity and then take two days long, you know, two days more to hook them up, uh, get generators out to them, fuel them, you know, find good, good fiber uh, to get us back. That stuff needs to now be baked in to our telecom infrastructure. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know much I can share, but where I used to work at the, at the WISP, um, uh, worked there for about seven years we it was primarily wireless since it got started and um, but then we made the, we made the shift into fiber and as we made the shift into fiber we actually had numerous locations with two levels of of uplink we had a fiber uplink to a, a nearby exchange or telephone uh place and we also have an existing uh backhaul wireless as well so we'd actually have two two places of of um of yep. exit to the internet and so that was that was common practice we did it was simply because that the fiber backhaul would take longer to install, mm -hmm. but as as we realized, as 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 we were both running together, we realized that's probably quite a good idea a idea to have both running, and the the license cost of the of the fixed wireless sort of out as you said out as you said earlier, the cost of installing something outweighs the the money you'd lose afterwards. So the the cost Absolutely. of the license sort of outweighed the 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 downside of it. Absolutely, so, I yeah. love I love that you said that that was kind of like best practices to have wireless backhaul. Um, you know, as a, as a backup to fiber to keep that in place. In the 1990s, it was like a 15-minute time where the term mixed media backup was in vogue. Um, and everybody was talking about it. And the whole premise was that if your most critical communications um, was running on terrestrial infrastructure, cable across telephone poles were underground, and in particular, you didn't know how it was routed or whether there was a single point of failure, that you needed to have wireless backhaul. But what ended up happening is that the fiber industry um, came out with 100% SLAs and uh, really very, very well sold the public on 
or I should say the buyers, on the idea that if you have enough fiber in the ground, if it's redundant enough, if it's diverse enough, if you have diversity in your routes, if you go to different data centers, that you're completely protected. Nothing's going to happen to you. And that is absolutely false. And this is the one line. I'm the first one to say this, and I want it on my tombstone because it might be the only sensible thing I've said, um, which is fiber is a single point of failure. Now, you can qualify that further and say, for extreme weather, I actually don't even need the qualifier, but this is what I want to tell my WISP friends, that they need to tell their biggest clients, do not sleep well on 100% SLAs. 100% SLA just means you don't have to pay for the service when it's down. doesn't mean it's not going to go down. And the news that we have, and we see it, there's evidence all the time, fiber fails, the power goes out, fiber fails, the streets are flooded, fiber fails, wildfires hit a region, fiber and power fails. So it's a single point of failure and it doesn't matter how diverse or redundant your fiber is. If we still are only have one utility uh, provider, one electric company, right? It really doesn't matter. And the other thing is we all know that telecom lacks transparency. I mean, here in the U.S., if you have fiber and you're a big client, you don't know how your fiber is routed. And when you're buying redundant and diverse fiber, you don't know how redundant and diverse that is. Telcos never give you um, a fiber map and say, well, this is where you know these fiber strands go and this is where those go. And so often we, and we, we talk to a client and the client finds out, oh, wow, we have all this diverse fiber, but it all comes under this footbridge, you know, that, that goes into our property. So, I mean, the point of the matter is that fiber is the best way to reach the internet, but we cannot rely on it 100% of the time. And if we have critical data where the, where public health and public safety depends on it, corporate fortunes, regional economies, we have to get serious about resilience and actually do it. You know, this is how I got back in the business, Alex. Um, and I, I don't want to digress much, but I was really, really depressed. And I, I was done with this business. And an environmental friend uh, offered to buy me drinks if I went to a, uh, a climate conference with him. So I, I, I went to this two-hour climate conference in Boston, and it was all about climate resilience. And I'm not and never was an environmentalist, not that there's anything wrong with it. I love the environment. But I had no background in it. But... I'm listening to like all these big shots flown in from around the world talking about how they're making energy more resilient, how they're making wastewater treatment more resilient, how they're making public health more resilient, how they're making transportation more resilient. And not one of them talked about information, critical data, or, the, or how much of their operation actually vitally depends on data access. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to tell my WISP friends is if you're not making a lot of money, we need to question the value proposition. We're in a commoditized industry because, you know, we're delivering data for, we're delivering internet access for Netflix. Yes, also for people who work at home. Yes, also for students who do their homework. But it's it's commoditized, you know, how much bandwidth for how little money, 
it's not hypercritical. And so, you know, where I told you before, I don't want to be the lowest cost bandwidth provider. I actually want to be the highest cost bandwidth provider. Me and all of our friends and partners, we are going to be selling the highest price premium bandwidth because we are making that bulletproof, right? Um, we want to be paid based on quality and criticality. We want to be paid because we keep critical industries and places like hospitals and airports from going down. And the one big, uh, probably the biggest objection I get to wireless backhaul is that it's a toy compared to fiber. Like, oh, well, I have 100 gig backbone. What are you going to do for me with wireless? Well, you know, the lifeboats on the Titanic couldn't take the napkins and the silverware and the furniture, but they saved 700 people. So what wireless backhaul can do is if you have a 100 gig backbone and you're on the coast of Boston in a floodplain uh, running a hospital, I can give you 30 gigs of data uh, access with 80 millimeter wave radios um, and arguably every critical function in your hospital will run as always. You may not be able to stream um, uh, you know, video into 600 patient rooms. There are certainly areas that you're gonna compromise. Uh, QoS is going to have to be a big priority, you know, setting that up. Um, but the point of the matter is that, again, this is lifeboats or seatbelts for critical data um, for the new world of, of extreme weather. It's, uh, it's not just extreme weather, though. I've just jumped back to the air fiber again. Um, so when yeah. the air fiber was announced, they had that uh, demo video. Um, it was the people talking about how they developed it and that sort of thing. And their main selling point for air fiber was it's going to um, stop copper theft. So they were saying, look, if you've got a, a massive uh, massive fiber run crossing across, crossing lots of different environments that you have no control over, what's mm -hmm. to stop someone who's, in, who's after copper to slice open the fiber cable and, and realize, oh, it's fiber, and then they leave a lot of stuff offline. Their main, their main selling point was, why not store two air fibers or two backhaul links and have the, the, the points that, where they are secured and are locked away, and you can you can deliver... Uh, through uh, deliver bandwidth if you need right. if you need to so right that was the main it, i think it helped a lot of not just the it will help the environment uh disasters that happen and also the yeah. yep. the opportunities as well so well i mean you're absolutely right this isn't just a um, you know about extreme weather uh this this is also a solution for uh terror attacks on telecom infrastructure uh as well like you know we had an AT&T building that was bombed and we also saw during 9-11 how uh, telecom infrastructure at the um, lower part of Manhattan was completely, you know, completely devastated. And what happened after that? Hundreds and hundreds of fixed wireless uh, links came into service. But again, we have to stop doing that. We have to stop bringing that after the fact. We have to, you know, we have to bake that in beforehand. Um, I, I also want to mention, by the way, because... Um, a big question comes up, like, who's going to pay for that? And, um, you know, the interesting thing is that clients are all paying for it right now. Um, before we launched our business and came out of stealth mode, we did a few years of research and talked to hundreds of CIOs for, for major companies across the country. And they admitted uh, almost to a person that they overbuy fiber on the whole belts and suspenders thing where, you know, it's almost like 
you can't go wrong buying too much fiber because the more you have, the more protection you have. Well, our thinking, you know, for new best practices is actually no. Peel back some of that investment that's not resilient, that's not going to work for you. Take that money that you're spending now that arguably is wasted, you know, because there's a better way to do it and shift that money over to the fixed wireless solution. Now, the last part of that, Alex, is that, you know, one of the reasons why fixed wireless has never really taken off um, is because after my time and after the time that everything was so serious in fixed wireless, I mean, you needed an FCC license to touch microwave radios. Um, today, anybody can pull that stuff out of a box, turn it on, connect it up, and the customer makes a decision on the technology based on their experience with that particular installation and that particular brand of radio. They don't know how to distinguish between anything. And so if you have a provider that doesn't have much experience or they're a jack of all trades and they've only, you know, and like one day they're installing a wireless link and the next day they're doing a home stereo, well, they're going to do a shitty job. And so when weather happens, the link's going to go out or any number of things can happen. And then, and then you have people disparaging fixed wireless and saying, oh, you know, um, I don't really feel comfortable with that technology. I like a physical medium. So the other thing that we're doing uh, as part of Climate Resilient Internet is that we've created and we're continuing to develop and evolve a best practices standard that all providers need to get on so that we're all on the same quality and execution page. And in fact, we are certifying providers according to their ability to administer and execute on this standard so that we are absolutely done with bad fixed wireless stories. They can be other people's problems, but we're not gonna hear it. We're not gonna answer those questions. And in the future, what we wanna sell is a certified solution. And the question to the customer isn't, do you want fixed wireless? They don't even have to know it's fixed wireless. We're selling resilient internet and cloud bandwidth. The question is, do you want or do you need to be resilient or not? You know, it's not, do you need a fixed wireless backhaul solution? The answer is, if you have critical data and stockholders that expect you to be in business or patients that need you to work on them, you have to have. So now imagine, Alex, if that catches hold. So then fixed wireless backhaul becomes like generators, like power generators, where there are many industries in the U.S. where power generators are mandatory because it's understood that these industries serve the public. They can't go down. Well, how long do you think it's going to be before there's also a data mandate? Because what good is power backup if you can't access your data? Yeah, definitely. The the the, uh, the whisper used to work out the fix the lot of the buckle we used um, a couple of years ago. It, there was basically the only fiber we had was the, the links back to the data centers. So all the remote WISP towers and that sort of thing they're all fed with with buckle license radios. So we used a manufacturer called Saragon. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, Saragon produce a lot of. They also produce uh, fixed wireless radios for Cambium as well. So Cambium have a range of licensed radios and they're not cambium they're just rebranded surrogates so i, I think um, cambium now makes their own radios 
um, yeah, this, this was actually, it was, it was a, a wild learning experience for me, um, you know, in the early aughts and whatnot, because I always made my own radios. And when it came to hundred meg radios, um, you know, I was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll have to have, you know, five, six, eight million dollars of R&D money. I, I didn't realize until too late that there was a company called Remick that was making virtually everybody's ODUs at the time. It was like 85 percent of all the microwave manufacturers uh, were really just um, writing their own um, interface software and yeah. buying radios from elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, Saragon's a, 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 a great radio manufacturer. They're, they're, they're fantastic, yeah. Yeah, they used to – I know you're on about the um, the analog radios used to have. They used to have an indoor unit as well. So yep. Saragon's earlier products actually had an indoor unit as well. So yep. rather than everything being on the back of the dish, they had the the uh, indoor unit um, with, like, a rack mount device. So Well, you know, the wireless backhaul business is dead. You know, it's dead. I don't I, I don't know what the figure is for how big it is, but I don't hear about it. You know, I almost went out of business trying to sell wireless uh, backup. Did I say backup mm-hmm. instead or backup? I meant to say wireless, backup, I think. Yeah. Backup, right. Yeah. Wireless backup as a business proposition died a long time ago. Um, I want to bring it back, but I don't want any providers, any of our providers to ever use the term backup because it's a pejorative term. You know, it's like it uh, it it almost automatically means subservient, you know, secondary, but there's nothing backup about this. This is about resilience. And we like to say that this is part of the new primary telecom infrastructure, you know, and as such, it's not just sitting there waiting for a bad day to turn on or to find out whether or not it works or not. It's always carrying its share of of production data. So presumably it also helps to pay for itself in the course of the year. But then when the other, you know, terrestrial infrastructure goes down, it's up. But I wanted to ask you that question, Alex, because, you know, I'm not alone in understanding that proper, properly installed, um, hardcore, um, you know, wireless can withstand, you know, even, um, the most severe storms. And I had friends during Hurricane Sandy time, for instance, and we all talked afterward about like, oh, well, I had, you know, these clients that never went down. Uh, Time Warner was one of my clients in uh, Manhattan, and uh, we had them routed through 60 Hudson Street. um, And uh, they were carrying PBS information. It was a Hispanic information and telecommunications network. And they never went down because they were routed through 60 Hudson Street, the famous data center. Um, and in that data center stayed up. They never skipped a beat. They're a tier four data center. They're paid to be resilient. So, you know, my friends and I were all talking about like how remarkable it was that, hey, you know, this is amazing. And we knew it was possible, you know, and we had a story to tell, but nobody wanted to hear that story because everybody was like, oh, that's never going to happen again. You know, we're never going to see that kind of storm again. Um, but today we're seeing those storms and we're seeing heat waves and wildfires uh, and things that are constantly putting the internet down. Um, and this is the last part of, 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 you know, a lot of what we talk about, which is like going back to the lack of transparency in our, in our um, industry. Nobody truly knows how often the internet fails. 
Um, you can find out how often power utilities fail because that's public information. But what's not public information is how often your carrier fails, how often the fiber goes down, why does it go down? How long does it stay down for? What brought it back up? All of this information is, is not information we're privy to. So if you wanted to do a vulnerability assessment for a city to find out like, oh, where are your critical assets and how vulnerable are you? You can do a vulnerability assessment for power, but you can't do one for telecom because if you're a civil engineer used to the science of constructing vulnerability assessments, you don't have any data to go on. How convenient, right? So you can't in a spreadsheet say, oh, well, according to the to data that I obtained, you know, we had 3,787 internet outages of this duration in this region for that reason. There's no such information. So we need to actually start to train civil engineers to be able to not skirt their responsibility to, to recognize that telecom vulnerability is part of their vulnerability assessment. That's not just for IT folks. Telecom infrastructure is infrastructure. And the civil engineers that are doing vulnerability assessments for airports and for FBI buildings uh, and for Department of Defense and military in installations, they need to start thinking about telecom infrastructure in the same breath that they're thinking about electrical infrastructure, which pretty much goes hand in glove. And they fail the same time, often for the same reasons. So, you know, there's this is innovation, Alex, even though there's nothing new being invented here. Um, this is a whole new way of thinking about about telecom. Sure. Yeah. It's uh it's an important thing to talk about. So the the other thing we the other thing we spoke about was um that maybe the WISP industry isn't as big as it used to be. But they so personally I follow Ubiquity quite a lot and we've talked about it a few times now. Um it's good to see that they've come out with a whole new line of fixed wireless point to point and point to multiple products. And for a company that they are now that are doing a lot of enterprise Wi Fi stuff, the fact that they're putting their focus back on the, the WISP industry and they've they've got a whole new product line, software line, and even billing systems that are free of charge for the Wisp industry is, is really encouraging to see, especially with the size and size and breadth they are and and the markets they're in. Um, they've got a whole new line of uh, sixty gigahertz point to multi point stuff that's mm -hmm. out. They've got um, UISP, which is their uh, device manager software. It's got billing and it's all given for free to Wisps, which is um, obviously they're, they're they're hoping that you buy their products, but right. they've they've got a whole a whole new development in in wisp products which is really good to see so well you know ubiquity's been out for a long time as you know they didn't start as a wisp proposition um they didn't start start to help wisps close the digital divide um they, their business was um basically to connect um the unconnected around the world in um developing nations and I think still that's where their proposition, along with Starlink, is strongest. Um, I don't think that their product line was appropriate for use in the U.S. I mean, it was in the early days of the WISP industry, but then um, the noise floor 
uh, at 2.4 and 5 gigs grew out of control. Um, and, uh, you know, there were some things that helped to tame that, but there were manufacturers out there, and Ubiquiti is one of them, that weren't working on taming the noise floor. They weren't thinking about that at all. And, um, you know, I mean, for that reason, I'm a super big fan of RF elements. Um, yeah. And, you know, talk about innovation and talk about it not necessarily being anything new. They brought back horn antennas that people hadn't seen in decades. And thank God, because those horn antennas have done more to uh, mitigate noise in unlicensed bands than anything else. Aside from other things like friends of mine, like Richard Bernhardt, uh, you know, um, people who have been, who have served many years on committees that are helping to open up more frequencies uh, for WISPs. But, you know, the five gig space uh, was almost unworkable uh, when I was writing about it in the early, you know, in the, like 2004, five, six, it was getting really, really bad. So higher end, um, higher end radio manufacturers, um, you know, I was following them like Mimosa, um, you know, slightly higher end, you know, if you will. Um, and, uh, um, so, you know, if Ubiquity is now, uh, making, uh, products that are more scalable for, let's say the U S market, then, you know, I applaud that. I don't, you know, our problem isn't lack of product, um, so much. Uh, or even that the product is too pricey. Um, arguably, I don't think we need lower cost radios right now. Um, so uh, I, I don't know, like, I don't know how they're going to play in the U.S. market. Um, is this going to be like, is there still a price umbrella for radio manufacturers? You know, um, they seem to be like, they've got a whole ecosystem of stuff. So like uh, they've announced it in a YouTube video, they've got power solutions like backup UPS systems as well. They're all managed on the, on the cloud controller, the switches, routers and things. So it's, it seems to be like a resurgence. I, I have a lot of respect for them. You know, I have a lot of respect for a lot of different companies that have different strengths in our industry, you know, like Starlink, for instance, you know, mm. without Starlink, the Ukrainians would have, you know, I don't know what the uh, status of Starlink in the Ukraine is right now. But without Starlink, the Ukrainians would never have been able to prosecute a war in the early days of the conflict. Um, and I, I believe that Starlink and low Earth orbit satellite solutions are going to be how we provide resilience to uh, consumers in their car and on the street and in their homes, because they don't have resilience right now, particularly if they have fiber to the home. But even if they have fixed wireless to the home, you know, the chain from fixed wireless back to the data center is such that that is not going to be a resilient connection as well. So, you know, in, in the U.S., there's only one type of critical communication that we say is resilient. And the verdict is out as far as I'm concerned. And that's AT&T's FirstNet. Do you know about FirstNet, Alex? I've not, I've not heard of that, no. So FirstNet is a multi-billion dollar initiative in the United States for first responders to always have critical communications access from their cell phone. So to always have a clear and available channel, because we've seen all too often, uh, not just with climate events, but 9-11 and the, the marathon bombing 
that you know it becomes a a a huge um it, there's a devastating effect on on telecom uh and a cascading uh calamity of issues where in the end first responders are unable um to access you know critical communications in an emergency and so AT&T got billions of dollars to create FirstNet. Um, and when I say presumably, it means, again, there's there's no accountability. Uh, so I, I don't know how good that is. We'll have to see. So it so we're so we supposedly now have uh, a layer of critical uh, communications resilience, but only for one type of user, which is uh, uh, first responders. What what my company is trying to do, climate resilient internet, is create and um, and provide resi- resilience for critical infrastructure at the in- enterprise level. That still is going to leave an entire community unprotected, which is going to be home users and people in their cars. There's a there's an in between part of people that are presently unprotected. And that's going to be all the people who go to emergency shelters. And this is something that I'm going to be chasing after my city of Boston about, because we have places where thousands of people are supposed to go in the event of a storm, and there's no communications infrastructure there. And so, you know, what happens when we have, you know, a big storm, we've been very lucky in Boston, but we're going to have these events. And what happens when particularly disadvantaged people who can't afford $400 a night in a hotel room all have to go to these places where thousands of people are and you can't call your family members, you can't find out who's safe and who's not, how is your house doing, you can't get medical attention because you have no way to connect to the outside world. And still we see in 2022 people on top of their homes with signs trying to communicate with helicopters or trying to get news cameras to find out that there's people in the home that need help. So Mm. we're starting something that needs to catch on like wildfire because communications is really important to all of us. And, you know, we all can turn a blind eye or deaf ear or whatever to it when the problem's not happening. Um, and, And nobody likes to pay for rainy day or insurance things, but we each have to think about what if we're that person? Or what if we have a family member that's in, that's in the hospital at a time where they need critical services, and all of a sudden the hospital can't access, you know, MR scans or records that are, you know, at a data center. So, 100%, I, so yeah. for that reason, Alex, I I really appreciate you know the opportunity that you're giving us to tell this story. Um, you know, we we need help with that. Yeah, so it's a really important uh, topic and. Just in the conversation I've had to be the past hour, it's it's a it's a it's very clear that it needs to be something needs something to be done. So appreciate you having on, appreciate you joining me on the show. Well, I hope you're going to edit this uh, edit this down to uh, to something much shorter because uh, there was <laughs> there was quite a lot of uh, a soliloquy going on there with uh, with <laughs> just babbling on and on. Um, but uh, you know, this is a this is a really exciting topic, and um, I hate to say it, but the wisp industry is so in their own heads about, you know, the rural divide and having this age old tiresome fight with fiber providers. And now we're having to bring the fight to, you know, to the government, um, whoever's like providing this money 
to convince them that, you know, certain wireless uh, should be funded by the government. And we are like, you know, we're really spending a lot of time and a lot of effort chasing really difficult propositions. And, you know, and we're, we're calling WISPs heroes because they're closing the digital divide. But I don't know, are we heroes or are we suckers? You know, because the big carriers got billions and billions of dollars many years ago to bring communication services to everybody, but they brought it only where it was most profitable and they left the rest to us. But, you know, what I want to say to the community is if you can do well there, that's wonderful. My fear in that business where it's residential is that it's commoditized. It's, you know, it's just waiting for aggregators to come and eventually there are going to be a lot of small providers that have to sell or just get steamrolled. Um, you know, and, and I think that, that there's a whole other side to the business uh, enterprise, high volume, critical data where uh, future fortunes will be made and where secure uh, family fortunes will be made. Um, and I say secure because customer retention is another thing. Customer retention sucks for residential. There's no loyalty. Somebody has a dish up on their roof and six months later, they can get rid of it because somebody's going to save them $12 a month. If you, if you put up something, you know, cause you're an airport and it's for critical infrastructure and it's about resilience and it's certified, that's not coming down ever, you know? So, um, so there's a story to tell to the industry. So we, we need the, the public to get excited, but we also need the industry to, to get excited, to roll this out and to, you know, and to, to go out and help people. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. I think, I th- I think that's a good, a good, good place to end. Um, thank you for coming on the show david it's been really really good to talk to you uh it's again it's something i'm i'm really really interested in the wisp business and a lot of wireless stuff so it's it's been really enjoyable uh if people well, want to get in touch with you oh sorry oh, oh no i'm sorry i mean i <laughs> i thank you too and and you know when i get off the phone and uh um grab my coffee and have rec- recriminations about how i could have done a better job on this you know <laughs> one, one thing i think of is that i wish that you had spoken more i wish that i had asked you a few more questions because I think that your experience as a WISP also ties into a lot of what I'm saying, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, we all have this knowledge and it's really, you know, a matter of like refining it and and going out and selling policymakers um, on the need, you know, on the need to do this. Um, Anyway, uh, to get in touch with me, um, well, there's a few things. I have a personal website that talks about industry history um, if anybody wants to, um, you know, nerd out on that, um, it's davidtheodore.com. And uh, my, my business website is Climate Resilient Internet or just resilientinternet.com. We have a lot of um, good information on there, two-minute videos, white papers um, on internet vulnerability. Um, and uh, anyone can reach me. Uh, email me at david at resilientinternet.com. I love to talk about this, as you can probably guess. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really want to get a lot of people engaged in this business. There's a lot of people going to make a lot of money um, helping to protect critical infrastructure. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're excited about that. So thanks again, Alex. You know, it's a great That's opportunity. absolutely fine. Yep. And you can find more about the interface at theinterface.uk. We've also got a dedicated website now for this podcast, which is creatorspotpod.uk. 
And you can follow the interface on Twitter at the underscore interface underscore. Thank you again for joining me, David. And we'll see you again Great. next time. Thank you. Much appreciated.